This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Was how professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. What happened to my monopoly? No, we haven't turned 35 West into a game show, but we will be talking about a book entitled Mexico Under Misplaced Monopolies. And I have as my guest the author, Francisco Gonzalez, a professor of international political economy and Latin American politics at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Welcome to the show, Francisco. Thanks very much. Thank you for the invitation, Richard. So you, you have a very long title. How do you get that all in one business card, right? <laughs> I, I think I've been in this business 25 years, and my background is in comparative politics, um, mainly Latin America, but in time, and, and this uh, is first and foremost a function of my school's uh, needs, I branched out and, and ended up comparing things about, say, dominant parties in Mexico uh, compared to domination of, of parties in India or, or Japan, or the effects of financial crises uh, in Latin America compared to East Asia or now the Eurozone. So I think that's, that, that's mainly the reason why. Uh, I have a, a long title. It, it's not that I'm very, very important. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, well, it reminds me of a joke um, that uh, in Washington, the longer your title, the less important you were. And I tell that about myself because <laughs> I, when, I, when I worked at the National Security Council, I had a very, very long title. And I said, compare that to, say, the president. And then I would tell them my title and to let them know where, where I stood. Um, but before <laughs> we talk about, you know, and I looked at your, your resume, Francisco, your CV, and I, I'm convinced we could probably do three or four podcasts based on what you have studied and taught about. But before we get into sort of the pro- professional angle, I want to learn a little bit about yourself. It's your first time on the show, and I usually invite guests to say, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, you're from Mexico, I know that, but tell me a little bit about maybe growing up, what your parents did, sort of what uh, what eventually got you into the arena of international affairs. Okay, well, I'm a Mexican. I was born and raised in, in Mexico. Come from a, a Mexican family on both sides, at least you know, last uh, four or five generations, everyone was born in Mexico, not necessarily Mexico City. Um, Maybe more than half of my family come from the western states of Michoacán and Jalisco. Um, Strong culture, strong Catholic ethos. Um, A part of my family on my paternal side comes from the state of Coahuila, border state with Texas. Uh, My grandfather was uh, educated in, in Texas. He and his Siblings were like many people living uh, along the border, and we're talking about the 1920s, 1930s. Even back then, their parents, if they could, we're talking basically middle, upper middle class people, they'd send their children to school to the United States. So uh, they do um, high school and university uh, here. Um, I did all my education up to undergraduate in Mexico. Like most Mexicans, I have a family in the U.S. I've got relatives in Northern California. I've got relatives in in New York, in in Long Island. And so many summers from when I was relatively young, my parents sent me uh, to the U.S. to spend the summer with my 
relatives, um, uh, you know, to, to earn some dollars, not for them, not, 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 not as remittances. It was more pocket money, but mainly uh, for me to, to practice my, my English. I went to a bilingual school in Mexico from, from a very young age. Um, and I decided to um, look elsewhere for uh, postgraduate work. Most of my friends in Mexico uh, after undergraduate came to the US the US has the best universities in the world so and and, and we're neighbors so it's perfectly uh, normal logical reasonable for people to make their first choice come to the US i made um an an active choice not to come to do postgraduate work here i wanted to go and live in europe uh, that was a uh, something that been in my mind since I was very young. I always liked uh, Great Britain and British uh, history, culture, and particularly music, uh, from the Beatles and Rolling Stones to The Clash and the Sex Pistols. They really were uh, a very important uh, part in, in my socialization as I grew up. I really wanted to go to England. And so I ended up uh, going to, to the UK first just to do a uh, what potentially was going to be a two-year master's degree, I ended up staying 10 years, um, did the PhD, um, uh, did a postdoc, became a junior faculty. All of this at the, at the glorious University of, of Oxford, which is wonderful, uh, a medieval place, uh, a place where you can move around in a bicycle. So um, the rest of the time you can just devote it to books and learning. Um, that was a, a great experience. Ten years uh, into into this and having uh, met um, uh, a lovely English Rose and having married there, we were offered an opportunity to come to the United States. Uh, Johns Hopkins uh, offered me to come to uh, the Paul Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies in D.C. And my wife, who's a cancer epidemiologist, was offered a position in the Bloomberg School of Public Health. So since 2005, we've been living here in the U.S. Our two children were born in the U.S. They are American, uh, although they also feel Mexican and, and, and British. Um, I am Mexican-American. Two, two and a half years ago, I made my pledge here in the U.S. and, and I have dual nationality. Um, the English rose remains just English. British, <laughs> remains English. Um, but we're very happy here, and it's an uh, um, intermediate platform which allows the family to go and visit my wife's family in, uh, in England, uh, as well as allows me to take my children to, to Mexico. So we've decided that this is good, neutral territory. Great, Francisco. I, I'm really relieved to hear that you're a Beatles fan, because for me, that's a non-starter. If you didn't like the Beatles, I, <laughs> we would have had to wrap up the podcast real, real fast. <laughs> Um, that's a that's a fascinating background. I think uh, one that um, what, what's striking is that uh, the the number of Mexican Americans that have very similar backgrounds so that used to be unusual. What you, that sort of the whole history of what you recounted, but I think part of what we're seeing over the last thirty four years is those stories like yours, although still not the majority, obviously, are increasingly more common. Sort of a, a blend of cultures, educations, and so on. Um, and certainly your academic work has sort of reflected that diversity. You're an expert on Argentina, Chile, of course, Mexico. You've written on energy. You've written on Sino-Latin American relations. Um, this morning, we're just going to focus really on Mexico because you, you had a, a book that just came out. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Mexico Under Misplaced Monopolies, the subtitle, Concentrated Wealth and Growing Violence from the 1980s to the Present. 
So you don't be- believe in just tackling the easy stuff. You 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 really get down to it. So <laughs> let me let me just I guess um, let me state what I think the thesis of the book was. You're the author, so you you can tell me if I've got it totally wrong. But I think the title refers to this idea of misplaced monopolies, in that the government, properly speaking, uh, in in you know liberal democracies, should have a monopoly on the use of force or the use of coercion. Um, and and uh, they they shouldn't, uh, or they should allow space within the market, uh, so that uh, the, the private sector and other actors can be involved in the market. And what you have seen and analyzed and argued in your book is that those that sort of flipped, and that um, other actors, primarily sort of cartels or illegal uh, uh, organized crime groups, now freely exercise this uh, right is not the right word, but they exercise violence or control. And the government has surrendered a lot of that. And meanwhile, the government has sort of stepped in and, and exercises a, a, a high degree of control in the economy. So all that is a sort of a preamble. You can agree with that characterization or not. But in addition, I'd like you to let's look back a little bit. Um, and how would you how would you characterize uh, the change in Mexican governance going back? Let's go back a half century. Let's go back to the late 1960s. Um, and what have we seen, let's say, you know, even decade by decade in terms of Mexican politics, its relation to the economy, and then its sort of relationship to culture overall? I know that's a huge question, and I'm asking you to surmise a lot in just a little bit, but there you go. Uh, let's, <laughs> this is the start. Uh, this is the start, right, of our, of our four-hour podcast today. <laughs> go ahead. So as a starter, first, I, uh, I agree with your characterization about uh, the Mexican state loss of capacity Uh, to enforce uh, its authority across the territory. This is a problem mainly since the 1990s. um, And uh, the uh, parallel issue regarding the economy, whereby even though Mexico opened up to trade, uh, to capital flows, privatized uh, a significant number of industries, the domestic structure of the economy remained very concentrated uh, and controlled by either public or private monopolies, duopolies, uh, oligopolies, few players in the economic arena, which uh, usually uh, means that for the average consumer, for the average citizen, uh, that is not good news because those monopolies will traditionally try to underproduce and overcharge for whatever it is that people need. Going back to this uh, half a century perspective, I think I'd I'd highlight two issues. The first one is that uh, change has not been gradual, steady, or linear. It's it's been more uh, punctuated by fits and starts, by reversals, by conflict, by crisis. There have been political assassinations. There have been successive financial crises, which uh, forced uh, political and economic activity in Mexico to move in the direction of um, outward-looking perspective. Um, That had not been the case, say, between the 1930s and the 1970s. The economy was relatively closed, and the government tried to pursue state-led industrialization. With uh, this variety of political and economic shocks, and the the, the time you, you highlight in particular, late 1960s, student protests, confrontations with the, with the state and the regime, uh, student massacres which leave behind 
um, not only blood and pain, but also the mark of the beginning of a, a weakening state and regime which had been in place in Mexico since the 30s, which had delivered good growth, which had delivered, I would not say law and order, certainly order. Uh, the, the rule of law is something that we can talk about later. Uh, but, but the country was orderly, and between the 40s and the late 60s, it posted high rates of growth, um, basic indicators, literacy, life expectancy, connectivity. All these things grew quite significantly. So the, the, the country was doing well, but this did not happen in a linear way. It was punctuated by crises. Political and economic crises uh, changed uh, these, uh, these, uh, uh, this very strong political economic order under uh, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the PRI, which was and remains a party um, that held elections uh, for seven years in a row and ended up winning consecutively, successively. They never lost power um, in seven decades. So this is not the USSR. But neither is it a democracy. Um, and I'd say, uh, you know, lastly, on average, given this change towards more openness, having to embrace open markets, having to allow other parties to contest power, on average, I'd say uh, Mexicans today are, are better and continue to improve in basic indicators such as, again, literacy, life expectancy, consumer choice, connectivity. But, and this is very important for our conversation, I think the average Mexican is worse off since the 1990s in terms of violence, physical security or insecurity, individuals, families, communities, and as well as the opening of the economy, uh, uh, in fact, led to greater, to growing inequality uh, owing to few opportunities for the, what people call the INS, those with particularly tertiary education, those who can speak English in Mexico have a great advantage over those who can't, uh, given that most of the business that we do concerns the United States uh, of America. Uh, I'd put it at maybe 30 to 70, 30 ins per 100 inhabitants. 70 of them remain out and remain without the opportunity or without the expectation of having good opportunities for themselves uh, and or their families uh, to prosper. So Francisco, one one indicator that uh, a lot of people like us look at, those in academia or in think tanks, um, are, are sort of the metrics of how people feel towards their fundamental institutions. And particularly in Latin America, you know, we, we look at this a lot. And, and as you know, there's polling, regular polling that's been uh, done uh, for a while, about once a year. Um, asking Latin Americans a set of questions dealing with democracy and their support for democratic institutions. And and the most recent one I saw, I think it was uh, released a little bit before the election, so probably in the spring, I think. Maybe there might be a new version out of the Latino Barometer poll. And the questions that I focused on were, um, in each of the Latin American countries, uh, what is, I think the, the question is, you know, uh, is democracy the best form of government? And then the the other question that I focused on was, uh, in certain conditions, one of high violence and uh, high corruption, would you uh, feel 
would you favor or not object to military rule? And what really jumped out at me was the fact that Mexico, you would think, I would think, having gone through this sort of democratic transition in the late 80s, 90s, 2000s, and uh, would score much higher than it actually does. And in fact, last year, I think Mexican support for democracy as the best form of government was a little bit less than half. And the number of people who would consider a military government in those two conditions of violence or corruption, which <laughs> was in fact the case, was also about half. So my question is, um, what does this say about the ingrained support for democracy itself and democratic institutions uh, in Mexico's culture? Or, or is it simply a problem that we just need to wait longer? You know, we've really only seen this for you know quarter century. Or is there something else going on than that? You know, we're going to get we're going to hit a ceiling, so to speak, in that broad-based support for fundamental democratic institutions. You point at a, a very sensitive issue, Richard, because the data that you cite is real. It's disheartening, but it is real. I'd say that support for democracy in Mexico um, is a mixed bag. And within that mixed bag, I would highlight um, three points. On the one hand, you go to Mexico, you go down there and visit, and you will find an open, vibrant, and, and plural society, open to speech, to organization, to advocacy, to things that were highly restricted when I was growing up in the 1970s and 1980s. So from the perspective of a public sphere the openness of a public sphere, the opportunity for citizens to express themselves, to organize themselves, to pursue uh, their uh, legal objectives, advocacy for good causes, that seems to be alive and well, very vibrant. It, in fact, is a significant counterweight uh, to uh, corrupt practices, be it within the state or uh, um, among many of the organized criminal groups that have terrorized the country, sadly, particularly since the late 1990s, but in particular since the, since the early uh, 2000s. Uh, the second uh, point would be that there is uh, effective check and, and balance within the system. Executive, legislative, and judiciary work as the Constitution tells them they should, similar to the United States, and that means that no single branch can monopolize power. There have to be agreements, there has to be rational debate uh, before official action takes place. But there's a caveat there. The caveat there is that this operates effectively at the federal level. Once you move a step down and you go into the state level, Mexico is a federation just like the United States, here in the U.S. we have 50 states. Mexico has 32 states plus the equivalent of the District of Colombia, Ciudad de Mexico. So at that level, governors and the state legislatures and state courts, you don't see uh, the healthy interaction of um, checks and balances. It's a much more diverse story. In many states, the governor is the top dog and the governor has in his or her pockets the local legislature, the local courts, so they can get away with, um, with quite a lot. 
The last point, number three, uh, which is the weakest link and which I think reflects why, as you say, uh, even now small majorities, 51, 52% of Mexicans, do not think positively about democracy and in fact support in extraordinary circumstances the potential for non-democratic forces to take over is that the liberal component of democracy, by liberal here I mean individual rights, due process, equality before the law, they are absent in Mexico, Richard. Whoever tells us that we've been moving in the right direction, that things are progressing uh, and, and are less bad than they used to be 5, 10, 15 years ago, is lying. The truth is that the rule of law does not exist in Mexico. Justice can be bought today in Mexico. The rich and the powerful, the influential, people with political and or economic connections which allow them to stand above the average Mexican are above the law. And this has produced um, a, a, a great disenchantment uh, among the average citizen. The average citizen certainly was very happy when Mexico was able to have not just one and the same party in power always, all of the time. Uh, we felt comfortable in, uh, uh, in a way, f feeling a normalization whereby we could be, we could look up uh, towards the US or France or the UK or, or any a liberal democracy and say, you know, w w we've reached this point. You cannot now criticize us for being undemocratic because there are alternatives and different parties, not just the PRI, can be in power. So, okay, that, that is called electoral democracy and that has been <clears throat> well installed in Mexico. It's taken roots, but the everyday practice of democracy in Mexico remains very low quality very skewed in favor of those with money, political power, or influence. And certainly, given the previous points that, that we uh, discussed, the breakdown in order, the great rise in organized criminal activity and barbaric indiscriminate violence taking place in cities, in, in, in towns, in villages across Mexico, that has led to great disenchantment among Mexicans has led to great fear. And a normal reaction when a citizenry feels fear is the need for protection. It is easy to see the temptation how strong men, strong women, not necessarily military, could be civilian, but people who promise to rule with, you know, with an iron fist, um, bringing in the armed forces and doing whatever the, whatever it takes to restore order. You can see that that uh, could end up having a positive echo among a population which by now, today, 2018, has been subjected to a so-called war on drugs officially since 2006, which has claimed the lives of more than 300,000 individuals. Many of them are, are baddies. Many of them are criminals. They decided to play the, 
that Russian roulette and, and joint organized crime. But many others, as, as the toll grows, are also innocent people who've got caught uh, in, in the crossfires. So at the end of the day, you have a scared population, a population who lives in fear and who feels that democracy has not delivered, at least on that, uh, uh, on that uh, parameter, democracy in, in fact has made things significantly worse for the average Mexican citizen. Um, but let's talk about uh, Lopez Obrador, the new, the new Mexican president. And of course, he campaigned. His, his primary themes were on, on the, precisely what you were talking about, uh, reducing violence and corruption. Um, there are other things he talked about, of course, and uh, there are other things that uh, that people have focused on. You know, he wants to spend more on social programs. Uh, he wants to reduce government expenditures, particularly on senior officials. And and a few weeks into his presidency, he's done some of those things already. But but I would argue that if if he doesn't fundamentally address those two things, uh, violence and corruption, he will he will be a failed president. Um, is there uh, is there a plan? that you can discern at this point, point. I realize we're just a few weeks into his presidency, a plausible, sustainable plan that his government or really any Mexican government can implement to reduce violence and, critically, control the flow of illegal narcotics to the United States. Because that's, of course, a huge issue between the two countries. And it's not necessarily... Uh, required that you do both at the same time. So we heard during the campaign, Lopez Obrador float a few ideas that kind of I haven't heard about since. One was, well, maybe some sort of amnesty for cartel leaders, presumably leaders. Another one was a decriminalization, some sort of decriminalization. Again, not certain how wide that would apply. Since then, I haven't heard a great deal on specifics. So why don't we, why don't we tackle... I guess the larger question first, is there, is there a plan that you think could be implemented that would address some of these questions? And, and then what have you seen Lopez Obrador do in his first few weeks or his minister's key ministry? Right. Uh, there you very clearly uh, touch uh, an open, fresh wound, <laughs> Richard, because the simple answer to the question is no, there is not plausible plan today that either the new president Andres Manuel López Obrador or for that matter anyone in the opposition could uh, implement to both reduce violence and control the flow of narcotics to the U.S. Why do I uh, say this? Um, the new president López Obrador has had to, to continue the previous policy of keeping the police and the military um, in the streets of the country. This has to do with the very complex dynamics that violence itself has gathered. It's become uh, so pervasive, not throughout the country by any means, but in many hotspots, which by the way can also change. Uh, criminals appear in some areas, the government sends uh, forces to uh, go after them. They just, you know, uh, tuck their heads down, uh, stay, uh, keep keep low for uh, a couple of months and then reappear or in fact move their operations to neighboring states. Uh, what you have on the ground is a very complex dynamics of violence, which in the past, when Mexico was ruled by one 
single party. And there was a very strong president who could pick up the phone and call any of the 32 governors and tell them, you have to do A, B, and C regarding security, regarding um, clean water, and regarding teachers' unions. If you don't, uh, then you're not going to be promoted in the next political cycle. The, the system tended to have strong command and control capacity. The orders from the center would flow to the states, and the governors were pawns, loyal soldiers of the president. They tried to do the, 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 their best to try to deliver what the president had wanted them to. And all of them, of course, were part of the same party. So there could be um, relatively easy and effective coordination between center and uh, all the states to pursue uh, uh, common objectives. Since Mexico became a democracy and the presidency lost that great capacity to conduct things the way a given president, he, she, we still haven't had uh, a woman president, uh, but the way they see it fit. Today, there are many governors from many different parties, not PRI, governors from the left, from the PRD, or even further left from Morena, which is uh, the, the, the current president López Obrador's movement party, a relatively new phenomenon, um, a, um, an organization that was only formed in 2014. So very young, really, to, to have really grown roots throughout the Mexican territory in order that the president can simply uh, order and get his governors to do what, what he tells them. Uh, th the truth is that the majority of the governorships remain, in fact, in the hands of the opposition, PRI, or the traditional conservative PAN, Partido Acción Nacional. So there are many governments today that probably will not even answer the phone if López Obrador calls. Um, and they will not feel bad about it. They know that their, their, their political career does not depend on López Obrador. It depends on elections. And so, and so since elections became the only game in town, what you see is uh, the, the, the normal decentralized plural dynamics that you see in the United States of America um, or that you see in, in any other uh, democracy whereby politicians are more responsive to their constituents, to local conditions on the ground. If some of these conditions mean that it's good for certain states to uh, not officially, not publicly, but in fact to acquiesce in the illegal activity of the narcotics cartels because this provides significant amount of money, you can bet that many of these governors are not going to, to make this an official policy, but are in fact de facto allowing throughout their territories for this activity to continue to happen in as much as it creates wealth, as it creates uh, jobs. So that's on the, on the, uh, uh, on the violence uh, uh, side. On the narcotics uh, uh, side, I think there is um, a significant consensus in Mexico, uh, public awareness, that a lot of the 
narcotics-fueled violence uh, has as its counterpart, of course, the United States of America. Current example, demand uh, for opioids, given the, the horrific opioid abuse epidemic raging in the United States since the early 2000s. For many people back in Mexico, what they say is, what a paradox that such a terrible crisis, public health crisis, was caused by legal means. By legal means because it was private pharma, which created oxycodone, oxycontin, you know, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, other private uh, uh, ventures. And their rep cells then convinced many among the, the medical establishment in the United States to provide um, uh, strong, uh, long-lasting opioids to people in a very responsible manner. Mexican cartels saw a great opportunity once the United States government started clamping down on the abuse of prescription drug, uh, uh, you know, the facility with which people could gain access to, uh, to this. But you have millions of people who are hooked. Mexico, which has traditionally been uh, uh, a producer in rural areas of uh, the white poppy used for morphine and heroin became now one of the largest producers in the world within a, within a decade we've ended up uh, producing more poppy for heroin production than Afghanistan which used to be by far the largest producer in the world so the Mexicans are saying there has to be co-responsibility. The United States, it's not doing its part in helping to quell narcotics traffic as well as the violence that's associated to it, because look at some of the issues that happen there. And they are happening through legal means. Th that, that is scandalous in, in the view of many. The, the other point regarding uh, what many Mexicans perceive as not effective cooperation from the U.S. authorities, of course, has to do with uh, the, the big weapons uh, black market, the trafficking of high-caliber weapons from the United States to Mexico. There's not a single Mexican firm that produces guns. <laughs> the, the, uh, an armament industry in Mexico is non-existent, Richard. And nonetheless, you and I, we go down to Mexico and hear about, and in many cases see, very heavily armed both state forces as well as non-state forces, organized criminals, flaunting themselves in the streets of towns and cities with impunity, carrying high-caliber weapons uh, to, to try to antagonize, to try uh, to uh, instill great fear in their enemies, among the, the, the population. Well, a lot of that uh, traffic, not 100%, but more than three quarters of that has been fueled by American weapons that cross the border, that, that go south. And so Mexicans say, here you have an industry where Americans produce the weapons, they make money from selling the weapons, and then in the south you have Mexicans a lot of very sick, psychotic Mexicans killing other Mexicans 
with uh, these uh, weapons. So I sadly think that the, the situation has become so complex that however much goodwill, however much popular uh, capacity that the president has, and he does have it, he has a lot of, of, of political capital with him, there's no silver bullet, there's no simple presidential decree that could um, suddenly or within a short period of time reduce violence and control the flow of, of narcotics to the U.S. I think that we are in this game for the medium to long term and the key thing to think about for us who look at Mexico and the United States is how the relationship and that co-responsibility between the two parts can pan out in order that some of the factors that have been fueling the uh, the trafficking as well as the violence can be at least mitigated, if, if not cancelled, uh, but at least uh, mitigated. That is a, a, a process that will take a significant amount of of time and really stretch close cooperation between the U.S. and, and Mexico. So one final quick question, Francisco, uh, on, on precisely that point. Um, everyone, I think, predicted or thought, uh, say, a year, year and a half ago, when Lopez Obrador was leading in the polls, that, oh, my goodness, Lopez Obrador, this you know fiery leftist, and Donald Trump are going to hate each other. The relationship is going to be terrible. Um, that hasn't happened to many people's surprise. Uh, that could change. But uh, do you think, one, there, there are more than two possibilities here, but one, either it means that Lopez Obrador has become sort of more mature statesmanlike, and or he's making a strategic choice in terms of not taking Donald Trump head on, uh, whether it's on Twitter or in the news or, or whatnot. Do you think that's going to continue? G given that we've already seen significant tests of the relationship, whether it's caravans at the border, whether it's on the issue, particularly in migration, on DACA, on other things that you would have predicted would have blown up the relationship. We haven't seen that. What are, what's the likelihood? Let's just give ourselves a year. In the next year, what's the likelihood that we, have a, we see a big uh, rupture between, personally, between Trump and AMLO? This is getting into into very dangerous waters yeah. <laughs> uh, because you, you can give me a yes or a no if you want. <laughs> this is also the questions most easily disproved. You know, a month from now, like oh, those right. idiots. What were they thinking? So uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to be a long answer. Uh, of course, <laughs> of course. But it is a fascinating uh, question to ponder because you have two uh, very self-assured, uh, very strong, uh, charismatic leaders. Both are nationalists, by the way. One, you could argue, is more a, a, a rightist nationalist. The other one, uh, the, the Mexican, a leftist nationalist. They both have uh, hardcore uh, grassroots uh, followings, uh, and, and their mouths can get them into, into trouble. Um, President Trump uh, is, is in this category uh, more than, than López Obrador. But, of course, López Obrador has only been in power two weeks. <laughs> give, so, give him time. Right? So let's, let, let's just give him time uh, to, to really understand what's, what's going on. You're, you're absolutely right that the relationship so far, and surprisingly, has been smooth, uh, given that President Trump repeatedly uh, has, has stated his dislike, his antagonism for Mexico and, uh, and Mexicans. Um, 
López Obrador can be a pragmatic individual, but he can also be stubborn and dogmatic. Uh, people close to him highlight both uh, positions. They haven't been able to figure out you know, which are the, the precise mechanisms that bring out the pragmatic or the dogmatic in him. It's not uh, a pure uh, chance or capriciousness. Uh, you know, I have a headache today, I feel bad. I'm, I'm going to be really dogmatic and try to, uh, to kick the board. It, it, it's, not, it's not that. Um, but he is someone who can switch from a very uh, compromising, negotiating, bargaining position to a, a very principled, um, very, uh, this is done the way I, I say, because I say so, and because the people of Mexico, the Mexican nation, is behind me. So those two things coexist. I think thus far, the pragmatic side has, has, has won the day. I think that López Obrador and his advisors are very clear that picking up a conflict with the U.S., particularly with uh, President Trump, would be very costly for Mexico's image, potentially very costly for Mexico's economy, for the possibility of bringing uh, foreign direct investment, uh, for the possibility of uh, uh, keeping the United States on our good side. And so interestingly, my answer to the question is, I think that the possibility of a fallout has to do more with conditions in Mexico than conditions in the U.S. or what President Trump says. What do I mean by this? If, as you say, within a year, within two years, if we see that López Obrador's plan to promote social justice, to build a heavy infrastructure, um, to reduce inequality, if these things are not happening, and if the president starts losing the big popular support that he has, if the center PRI, the rightist pan uh, are getting better numbers within a couple of years and Morena and Lopez Obrador uh, seem to be, uh, uh, you know, plateauing, not doing very well. It is very tempting and given Lopez Obrador's personality, easy to see how he could play the nationalist card and he could start criticizing President Trump, his, his policies, uh, what he said about Mexico and Mexicans, in order to re-energize his popular support base. He knows and we know that Trump is not popular in Mexico. He, uh, eight or nine in every ten Mexicans uh, do not trust, fear, probably dislike the president and, and the way he conducts himself, at least regarding uh, uh, the way he's characterized Mexico and Mexicans. So if social and economic conditions in Mexico were to worsen in the run-up to midterm elections in Mexico, which will take place in uh, 2020, it is not hard to see uh, López Obrador, who has always been a nationalist, who has always um, extolled the virtues 
of Mexico uh, as a country who's had to fight very hard uh, to remain sovereign, uh, uh, to, to promote uh, uh, modernity. It is easy to see a, a politician of his generation with his style, as I was saying, playing the nationalist card uh, to, to, to re-energize the base and uh, to try to uh, um, you know, keep his simple majorities in the two houses uh, of our federal Congress, uh, to not lose governorships, potentially to keep winning governorships for his people. So that is uh, the situation where I see the highest likelihood of López Obrador, in fact, turning against Trump, against the U.S., to try to prop up, uh, to whip up uh, support for his leftist uh, um, agenda. Um, if that does not happen, I think the pragmatist side in him and, and the advisors that he surrounded uh, himself by, he's got a lot of people with significant practical experience in the United States of America, people who worked in the multilaterals at the IMF, at the World Bank, at the IDB, people uh, who know uh, uh, Capitol Hill, who know the lobbying game, uh, who uh, uh, know uh, American legislatures, represent representatives as well as senators. So in that sense, you don't have in Mexico a naive uh, uh, administration. You have an administration that knows the United States uh, quite well. If things don't go badly in Mexico, I think uh, um, the pragmatic side of not falling into the trap uh, of being baited by a, a Trump tweet would and should prevail. Um, from that perspective, I hope that some of these social economic progressive promises in fact pan out um, become become uh, a truth uh, on the ground uh, are possible, and Lopez Obrador does not have to 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 be between um, a rock and a hard place uh, where he definitely would have the temptation to use the nationalist card, and there he would not start criticizing Brazil or France or the UK. He would obviously start criticizing Trump and the United States. Francisco, this has been fascinating. Uh, pero muchas gracias, ha sido un placer, and I hope to have you back on the show. Muchísimas gracias, Richard. Muchísimas gracias to uh, all your listeners. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode, and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.